Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Welcome for those of you who are joining us from home today or when you're out and about, uh, those of you watching live or who will watch this again later, later on in the week. Um, we're starting a new series this morning, and uh, some of you recognize the logo, and uh, if you do, shame on you. Just kidding. Now, um, we're looking at God's goodness through human failure. God is still good even when we are bad. Does it mean that God refrains from judgment or wrath or punishment or discipline, but it means that his decisions, regardless, are always good. And so we start this new series today looking at Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4, which we'll go there in a minute. And you say, well, wait a minute, the fall didn't come until Genesis 3. But there is something that we need to take note of in Genesis chapter 2, actually for the next two weeks. There is one time where God says something is not good, and that is before sin enters the world. We'll talk about that next week. But this week, we're going to talk about this specific kind of tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one of the questions, if you're a pastor, you always get, and I've gotten this for over two and a half decades. Why would God put a tree in the middle of the garden that he did not want them to eat? We're going to talk about that today. And it probably will be a longer conversation beyond this format, but hopefully it starts at least some thinking in that direction that may help you to unpack the reasoning behind why God would put a tree in the garden that if they ate it, would lead to death. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. As I was doing research for this message this morning, I came across the smallest unit of measurement known to man right now. I'm sure that will be blown away by some other discovery, but the smallest unit of measure, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, currently is what's called the plank length. Okay, so a plank length is 1.6 times 10 to the negative 35. Okay? I'm not a mathematician. Those of you that have some sense of math in you may understand how impossibly small that unit of measurement is in length. It's 1.6 times 10 to the negative 35th. This is equivalent to around a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a centimeter. Okay, let me say that again. I can't fathom that, but somebody's figured it out. Much smarter than me. And it doesn't take much to be much smarter than me. It's the equivalent to around a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth centimeter across. That's a decimal point followed by 34 zeros and a one. Okay? That's what we're looking at. 
This is the scale at which the quantum foam is believed to exist. We, can't, we don't have a powerful enough microscope to be able to see that small. And so there are theories that go to these great lengths to try to describe theoretically what that would look like, and they call this the quantum foam. I just think of, you know, like a foam bath or so. I don't know what to think. I mean, what would that look like? You never have a clue. I don't know. String theory, I've read about it, have no clue what that is. This is the place where the laws of quantum physics cause minute wormholes to open and close constantly, giving space a rapidly changing foam-like structure. Again, that probably sounds like Charlie Brown's mom or teacher to you, as it does to me. Suffice it to say, there are these great physicists and chemists and all of these great biologists out there that have somehow come up with this understanding. If we were ever able to exploit the tremendous energy of the quantum foam that exists at this kind of measurement, then the power contained within one cubic centimeter of that empty space would be enough to boil the Earth's oceans. Okay? Again, probably like Charlie Brown's teacher to you. Let me tell you what sin is. Sin is any deviation from what God says is good. No matter how infinitesimally small that decision may be, sin is any deviation from what God said is good. God's perfect good is what is best. And anything, even if it's just slightly off, I mean, you may have the most good ever. Something that is perfectly good that is slightly off by one plank length would not be perfectly good, would it? Are you following me? Yes. Just making sure you're with me. Because God's good is perfect, and anything less than God's perfect goodness is not good anymore. It's become tainted. It's become corrupted. It's become perverted. How many of you have said, oh, it's good enough? to anything you've set out to do because you've gotten frustrated with trying to get it perfect, right? What if God said at the beginning of creation, as he's creating everything, at the end of every day, instead of looking over all that he created and saying, it's good, he said, that's good enough. That would be phenomenal, wouldn't it? Can you imagine a creation that was just good enough? But that's what we're talking about this morning. Some of you look around at creation now and you're like, it's not good at all. Correct. Because there's a problem with it. There wasn't in Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything perfect, but he created the potential and or the possibility for things to go south. Well, that doesn't sound like a good God unless you understand what it truly means to be good. Because would a good God not allow an opportunity to choose? Now you'll find in theology and in many churches, there is a great dichotomy or a split between free will and God's sovereignty. It's either all sovereignty and no free will or all free will and no sovereignty. And there's this debate that's gone on 
I'm going to say even for millennia at this point, but definitely for centuries, within the theological realm of Christianity that says either God is fully sovereign and there is no free choice, or there is free choice, which means there's a compromise in his sovereignty. What does all of that mean from a theological perspective, you're saying? I don't, I don't mark it in theological terms. Break it down, okay? Sovereignty is God's goodness and his all-powerfulness wrapped up into one that he controls every single facet of every detail of everything within time. If you take sovereignty to an extreme, what you get is that everything is orchestrated to play out the way it has. Okay? That means the death of loved ones, the Holocaust. That means death in general or even sin. That go all the way back to Genesis 3. That means it was already orchestrated that Adam and Eve would eat of this fruit that would lead to death and sin, that God ordained it this way, he preconceived it this way, and it was his plan. And I would say that is a gross misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of Scripture. Because I believe God gives free will, he gives humans choice. Because God would not be good, nor would he be loving if he didn't allow a choice. How many times have you heard me say from this stage, if God did not allow you a choice to receive and accept his love and to love him in return, what kind of love is forced love? That is an oxymoron. Forced love is not love. Would you agree with that? Think of it in human terms at a bare minimum. If you try to force your spouse, your loved one to love you, can you do it? You can you do it? No. You might be able to force a facsimile of something that looks kind of like it, but you cannot force real, true, unadulterated agape love. You just can't do it. Love has to be given freely. It has to be received freely. It can never be forced. So what kind of a world would God have to create being a sovereign God who is all good and all loving in which love could truly exist. It would have to be a world where there was a choice. And if God allows humans the choice to either receive or reject his love, then what does that conceive of in your minds about the possibility for things to exist in the world? It means that God took a risk. Would you not agree on that? God took a risk. He took a risk on you, on me, on the first humans. He continues to take risks. And you say, a God who risks is not a God who is sovereign. I beg to differ. I believe that there is no sovereign God the way God claims to be in Scripture that is any good except one who takes the risks on free individuals that he creates with the opportunity to love and receive his love. Now that sounds maybe like a lot of philosophical mumbo-jumbo or the theological mumbo-jumbo, but just go there with me for a moment as we conceive of what good and evil actually are. So let's look at Genesis 2, starting with verse 4. After the creation of everything in the world, 
The sixth day, we look at the creation of the capstone, as we talked about last week, which is humankind. This is, the, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, just in case your translations deviate from that slightly, uh, just so you know what I'm reading from. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, the heavens being the universe, the stars, the nebula, the black holes, everything within the confines of the universe as we know it that we can observe with telescopes and all of that, when God created the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. So you don't want to get the cart before the horse. You don't want to create humans before there's something to sustain their life. Okay? No rain, no plants. You don't create humans because what do humans subsist on? Water and food. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered the land. And then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Let me pause there for a moment. We do not see God doing this with any other part of creation. We see God speaking things into existence. And God said... And it was. And God said, and God spoke, and things came into being. What does he do with the first human? He forms him. Now, we use anthropomorphic language, meaning language that humanizes God. Okay? And so we get this picture of God forming with his hands from the dust of the ground the shape of what we would know as a human. And he doesn't stop there. He could have said, wake up, like we do to our kids in the morning. I don't suggest you do this next part, breathe breath of life into their nostrils to wake them up. That could be a little disturbing, not only for them, but for you. But God, instead of saying, wake up, what does he say? Or what does he do, actually? He breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of the first human. Do you know the word for breathe is synonymous with spirit? In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit or God's Spirit is actually the same word used for breath. Oh, I love this. This is not, I could do another sermon on this, but when God gives his name at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, what does he say? Yahweh. There are no vowels in Hebrew. And so it's Y-H-W-H. And it's a breathy sound. And I read and saw a video of another scholar talking about how it's the breathing in and the breathing out sounds. Yahweh. Of the very name of God who brings the breath of life to the first human. And then the Lord God planted a garden in the east, uh, uh, the garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. Where was man created? He wasn't created in the garden. Where was he created? 
outside of the bounds of the garden, which we will find in Genesis 3 when, when man and woman are kicked out of the garden, not only for punishment but for protection, what does God tell Adam he will have to do? Toil by the sweat of his brow to earn and eke out a living from the dirt. And it will produce thorns and thistles. And then eventually, you will return to the dust from which you were made. Outside of the bounds of the garden. It was God's plan for the boundaries of Eden to expand. In Genesis 1, God said, I want to give you charge over all of creation. <clears throat> to fill the earth to be fruitful and multiply, to govern all that I have created, the living creatures in the air, on the land, and in the sea, and expand the boundaries of this garden of peace throughout all the world. So man was created and then placed in this garden. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit, in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's your first indication of anything that is potentially off. Because we don't read anything about evil until this very moment. A river flowed from the land of Eden. It watered the garden and then divided into four branches. The first branch was called the Pishon. It flowed um, around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch of that river was called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Ashur. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. Now we know where two of these rivers are located because they still exist today, the Euphrates and the Tigris. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, and the Lord God warned him, but the Lord God warned him. What did he say? You may eat freely, or you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you're sure to die. Here's the key point. The difference between good and evil is one plank length. Is doing anything slightly different than God says to do it. Then you say, who in the world can be saved? No one. There is no one good. No, not even one, we are told in Scripture then how in the world is anything even possible? Why do we even give a rip at all if no one is good nor has the possibility to be good? The possibility exists to be good in the fact that we can receive the free offer of God's salvation through Christ Jesus, which brings life out of darkness and brings redemption from sin and death. That is the only way. That's why... Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. 
That's an exclusive statement, and we in our culture don't like exclusive statements. Everything has to be completely inclusive, except what we know about the truth is the truth in and of itself is exclusive. Because if truth is not truth, then it is not. If truth is not exclusive, then it's not truth. Black cannot be white. White cannot be black. Do do you understand what I'm saying? There are hard and fast absolute truths that you can take to the bank that can never be other than what they are. We have the debate going on about male and female. But biologically, what we know is there are either male, we are a binary species. But I, I hear other biologists out there, well, what about this animal that can be both male and both female? We're not animals. God made us distinct and different from those creation. He created them with the ability to do certain things that he did not create us with the ability to do. But even at that, it's still binary. So what do we do? How do we deal with this problem of evil? First, we need to know that God is not a micromanager. God is not a micromanager. And what do you mean by that, Brandon? Well, here's what I mean by that. God is not up there zapping every one of us to do everything exactly the way we do it all the time. See, God cannot control you. And that sounds blasphemous in and of itself, doesn't it? Because we are told that God can do anything and everything except there are some potential differences in how we should respond to that. Can God do everything? Can God make a boulder so heavy he couldn't lift it? That's called the law of non-contradiction. It is illogical, and God will not do something illogical. He can do stuff supernatural that defy certain reasonings, but he doesn't do that which is irrational or illogical. You can see that if you read through Scripture. God will do that which is complementary to his character. That He will not do that which is contrary to his character. Can God sin? If God can do everything, then God can sin, except to say God can sin would mean he is not God, because God cannot sin. Do you catch where I'm going with this? So when I say God is not a micromanager, it is to say he doesn't orchestrate every detail of every move you make. That's why you are a free creature endowed with abilities to choose and not to choose, to act or not to act, just as Adam and Eve were in the garden. Why would God give a warning to Adam and Eve if he had already orchestrated for them to eat that fruit that he told them not to eat? Does that sound logical to you? And we say, well, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our Yes, they are. But God is not going to do something that is in contradiction to his character, nor will he contradict what he says to people. What he says, he means. Do not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I can say it in any language, any dialect, any accent, and it's still the same. God warned them not to do this. Does that mean he orchestrated for this? It would be like me doing this. I'm going to get to this in a second. Um, It would be like me telling my kid, don't you dare run into the street, and then grabbing them and throwing them into the street. 
Okay, here comes the bus. Don't do it. And then throwing them. Do you catch where I'm going? So let me give you some more examples of this. The first instance of, of God not being a micromanager is his placing Adam and Eve in the garden and them partaking of the fruit he told them not to eat. I just gave you an example of that. Why would he say not to do something that he intended for them to do the whole time? Well, he was just teaching them a lesson. What lesson was he teaching them? To not trust him? Second one, another account is the global flood account in Genesis 6, specifically verse 6 of the flood narrative, where the author of Genesis writes, and the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on earth, and it grieved him in his heart. If God was a micromanager, would anything grieve him? No, because he would have orchestrated it to play out the way that it did. It wouldn't be a surprise. He would have no sorrow, nor would he ever grieve. Now, there's another debate in theology called the immutability of God. Does God feel? Does he have emotions? Does he change? God in his very character does not change. He is, yes, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he does make micro changes in response to human decision and is still able to bring about his good and perfect will. What makes God more all-powerful? The fact that he would orchestrate everything and micromanage everything to play out the way that it does or the fact that he gives humans the choice to choose or reject him and still is able to bring about his perfect will? Which one is more powerful? Another account from 1 Samuel records God's regret of having ever made Saul king of Israel. One instance is when Saul became impatient by waiting on Samuel that he took matters into his own hands and offered a burnt offering to God before fighting against the Philistines. It was the priest's responsibility to make offerings to God, not the king. And so he's waiting on Samuel. Samuel doesn't come in the time period that he thinks he should. And what we read in 1 Samuel is this account of, uh, of King Saul pacing. His soldiers are coming to him. They're like, where's Samuel? The Philistines are right over there. They're going to attack before we get to attack. We need to do this. We need to, what's wrong with you? King Saul, come on. And Saul's like, all right, I guess I got to take matters out. And he gets the offering and he makes an altar and he burns this offering to God as a burnt offering. And then Saul happens upon the scene. You cannot, I mean, this is how the things that movies are made of, right? As if in perfect timing, Saul comes up and he still smells the burnt offering. Like, what in the heck did you do? Are you serious? Hear what he says. Samuel confronted Saul on behalf of God. He says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He would have. Do you catch the language? If he would have, then why didn't he? If he's orchestrating and micromanaging everything, then he can make Saul do what he wants Saul to do. But that's not what we're told. 
the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord had commanded you. And you say, well, God knew that Saul was going to be crooked. That's why he anointed a different man. God knows what's on the heart of mankind before any of us ever know it. Because Saul's heart had already turned before he actually did the sacrifice. Do you catch that? Do you catch that? See, this is one of the cool things about God is he looks upon the heart of humanity and not just on their actions because out of the heart flows what? Actions, words. It's what's nestled or buried or planted in the heart that becomes action. God already saw a turning in Saul's heart. The action just was the icing on the cake that caused God to say, I'm done. I'm done. I had hopes and plans for you, Saul, but didn't play out the way I'd hoped. And so God was sorry, and he regretted having made Saul king. These instances, just to name a few, indicate that not only does God not micromanage people or situations, he also doesn't exactly get what he desires. Does it give you a sense and a glimpse into the heart of God? See, when you create a humanity that has the freedom to choose or reject you, you don't always get what you want. All right, let's put it this way. And again, you, you say, well, you can't use this example. It's not an apples-to-apples apples example. Um, I think it's pretty close. But as a parent, I have a certain amount of control over my children. But I... I'm foolish to think that I have ultimate control over them because they themselves have a free will, a personality type. They have, they will or can do even what I tell them not to do. I can say, don't do X, Y, or Z because this will happen to you if you do. And the warning could stand as enough of a deterrent for them not to do those things. But guess what? Does it always? Those of you who are parents, you tell your kids, don't do X, Y, or Z, or do X, Y, or Z. Do they do what you tell them to do all the time? Do they not do what you tell them not to do all the time? Another, <laughs> I hear some mumbling over here. There's a problem. No. All right, listen up. God's rule is for protection, not for frustration. Not for frustration. Sorry, that's a tongue twister. God's rule is for protection, not for frustration. Do you know how, I, how many people have told me, I wouldn't mind to be a Christian, but there's all these do's and don'ts. And man, I'd have to give up a lot of stuff. People get frustrated at the do's and don'ts. But do you remember what I told you a little while ago? God looks upon the heart. I can do all the do's and don'ts possible that God expects of me and still miss the mark. There's a rich young ruler. I said this to my class this morning. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, 
don't murder, don't commit adultery. I mean, he goes through the whole gamut, right? Well, not the whole gamut, but a lot of them. Because he knows there's something deeper in the man's heart. And so he's just kind of rattling off some of the Ten Commandments. And you know what the, the ruler, the, the rich guy says? Well, I've done all of those. Or I've refrained from doing those things. And Jesus knew who this guy was. And he knew what lay really at the depth of who he was. That was going to inhibit him from entering the kingdom of God. And so he looks at the young man and he says, here's what I want you to do then. <clears throat> You've done all those other things, great. I want you to go sell off everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What does the rich young guy do? It says in that, in that narrative that he walks away dejected, sorrowful, because he was a man of great wealth. Do you know what had his heart more than anything? His possessions. See, God looks upon the heart. God's rule for us is for protection, not for frustration. He doesn't arbitrarily ask us to do things just to see if we're going to do it. Let me see what they'll do in this situation. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He's not some evil, sadistic puppet master up there throwing obstacles in our way to try to see if he could trip us up. That's what Satan does. And we oftentimes confuse Satan with God in the way God acts or the way we expect him to act. So what do I mean by this? Consider this, again, let's go back to the parenting analogy. I say to my kid, don't touch the burner on the stove. Why? Because it will burn you. I've given them a reason. God says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do, you are sure to die. Don't touch the burner on the stove, because if you do, you will get burnt. If you've never been burned before, let me ask you this, if you've never been burned, what is the concept of your mind, in your mind, of what burning actually is? If you've never ever been burned what do you think well I don't even know what that means but now I have a decision to make God didn't say you could touch the burner if you want to or you cannot touch the burner if you don't do you know what God said don't do it so I'm now faced with a choice to either believe what is told to me about that thing and to not do it because I've been warned to not do it because X will happen. Well, what is death? Death never existed at this point in creation. So God didn't give them all the information, I guess. Do I need to give my kids every detailed piece of information for them to trust that what I'm telling them is the right thing? Now, your kids will ask you, as all kids do, why, 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 until you are done with the whys. You're like, because I said so. I think that's how God is with us sometimes. Because I said so. You just can't understand it right now. Trust me. Don't eat of this tree. Don't put your hand on the burner. I don't want you to experience that which you have not experienced because it will be bad. Trust me on this. 
Should I have to be burned in order to truly understand what being burned is? Do I need to eat of the fruit of the tree that God says not to eat in order to understand death? No. That would be illogical and irrational. But we live in a day and age where truth is relative, and I could say one thing to you, and if you don't believe it, you don't have to believe it, because now truth is relative, and if truth is relative, then my truth is good for me, your truth is good for you, and you can do whatever the heck you please without consequence, except when consequence smacks you square in the face, it really shakes you to your core, because you realize truth is not relative, it is actually absolute. Does this make sense? Okay. I remember growing up, there was a say no to drugs campaign. There used to be a frying pan on the stove. This is drugs. Crack the egg. This is your brain on drugs. Any question? I can still remember that as a kid. So we still do the same thing without the weird analogy, okay? If I say to my kids, don't ever try drugs, and they say, well, why? I said, because they are addictive. They can ruin your life. They could even kill you. Do we see that epidemic happening today? Of course we do. But if you've never tried drugs, what is the concept in your mind of what drugs actually do until you take them? Do you need to truly experience what drugs do in order to know how bad they can be for you? I would hope not, but many of us have, correct? And many of us know people who have and have paid the ultimate price with their life. Do I need to try drugs in order to stand that they are bad for me or that they could potentially harm me? No, I don't need to experience the bad in order to believe that something can harm me. Biblical scholar and author Donald Gowan writes, some, or some cannot help but see the knowledge of good and evil as something that God arbitrarily and unworthily decides to withhold. Oh, he puts this tree there, and he doesn't want to give them everything, and so he withholds this one thing. It's kind of like a dangling carrot of temptation. No, that's not what happens. Because without that tree, is there truly any choice for humanity? No. What tree was also in the middle of the garden that was singled out and named that they were allowed to eat from? the tree of life, because God is the giver of life. He wants to continue to partake of life. Do you see the paradox or the dichotomy between the two, I should say? The tree of life and technically the tree of death or that leads to death. So what God is saying is, I want you to choose life. He says that to the Israelites in the Old Testament. I give before you a decision, a choice. Choose me and live. Or you can choose to continue to abandon me and do your own things and worship these other so-called gods, but you will die. You will not receive my protection if you choose to go that route. But choose me and live, he says. Which leads me to my next point. There is freedom within boundaries. And this is something that the enemy doesn't want you to know. Boundaries are good Boundaries are healthy. When boundaries are erased, we don't know where the line is. This is what we call 
the modern day morality problem. If there is no morality higher than you, if you are the sole arbiter of what right and wrong is, what does that lead to if everybody functions that way? Chaos, anarchy. If I am the sole arbiter of right and wrong, good and bad, truth and falsehood, then I will live and do as I please regardless of how it affects you. But what happens when somebody else's truth or morality affects your sense of truth and morality? What happens? It becomes ugly. Have you ever seen violent things happening in the streets? Do you ever see buildings being burned, people being shot and killed, innocent bystanders? What about cars driving through crowds of people? Because somebody's truth behind the wheel of a car is more important than another person's truth being hit by a car. Do you see what happens when you pull absolute truth out of its context and you place your truth within that context? So truth and freedom happen within boundaries. Desmond Alexander writes, freedom without bounds can all too quickly become destructive, <coughs> can become a destructive license which binds instead of liberates. Here's what you do. If you give a child no boundaries, how, how, do they raise, how are they raised? If there's no boundary, then they can do whatever they want. Have you seen kids grow up into teens or young adults or into adulthood that have been given no boundaries? They've been given free license to do whatever they want because I don't want to impose my legalistic ideals on them so they can, I'm not going to do what my parents did. I'm going to give them the freedom to do whatever they choose. How does that child usually end up later on in life? Anybody know? You ever seen the E! True Hollywood stories or any of these documentaries out there where somebody didn't have healthy boundaries in place? Their freedom became bondage after a while. Paul says in the New Testament, I am free to do whatever I want, but not everything I want to do is beneficial for me. Do you hear what he says? You hear what he tells the church? You are free to do whatever you want. He's not saying that it is good to do whatever you want. He's just saying because God created us free all the way back in the garden, you are still free to do whatever you want to do. But not everything is beneficial for you. True liberty is not found without bounds. The goldfish liberated from its fishbowl would not survive long in that newfound freedom, would it? <laughs> would it? We look at a fish in a fishbowl and we think, oh, how sad, he's confined. But you take him out of that fishbowl and you let him breathe fresh air, you've basically killed it. Don't eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat it, you are sure to die. Apart from God and his word, only deception and evil exist. Do you hear me? 
Let me say that again. Apart from God and his word, only evil and deception exist. There is a deception that what exists on the other side of the fishbowl will give me something that I want. There is this deception that says to us, the grass does look greener over there until you get over there and you realize you were looking at it from the side rather than from the top and it's just as much patchy grass as it was on your side of the fence. As Alexander explains, the permission to eat of every tree in the garden establishes an incredible range of freedom for the humans. God says, eat any tree you want to, except this one. But there's something in the sinful desires of human nature that says, well, I want to have what I am not allowed to have. And that's called sin, which leads to death and destruction. I see a beautiful woman that's not my wife. What am I to do? Anybody? You have, a, have any suggestions? I've been smoking dope, but man, what's that supposed to No, I'm not actually smoking dope. I'm just, it's a hypothetical. I'm not a smoke doper, dope smoke, whatever. But the high from the dope has lost its kick, and I need something a little bit more to take the edge off. So do I step across and have that? Well, I'm not saying try marijuana either. I'm just saying something led us to that, which leads us to this, which leads... Do you know what happens? Is we get led to these different places thinking it's going to give us freedom, but we get there, we feel guilty, we're like, oh crap, this didn't work out the way that I planned. And then we're like, well, maybe if I do this, it'll change. Well, maybe if I do this, it'll change. And all the while, we neglect what God's purposes were for us in the first place. And instead of going back and doing the first things over, we continue to perpetuate sin in our lives by doing that which we should not do. The first place people go when they sin is away from the church. You know how many relapse cases of drug addiction or sexual misconduct or anything that I've been working with people or they've, they've been here and then they're gone. You're like, okay, maybe they're on vacation. Maybe they're sick this week. But then a series of weeks pass and this church is relatively large I, it takes sometimes a while for me to notice. And you're like, well, then it should. Then I wasn't important enough. You know, that's a whole different conversation for a different time. I'm very simple-minded, man. I, it takes a while. That's my wife. It takes a while for me to realize certain things. But after a while, you realize somebody's not coming back. I wonder if I said something. I wonder if something happened. I wonder, my mind doesn't automatically go to they've sinned and they've walked away from the church. My mind goes to, did I offend them? Did something happen? What happened? Did somebody say something that really upset them? And then you reach out and sometimes you go to those links or sometimes they show back up later and they're like, you know, I fell off the wagon or I did X, Y, and Z and I was ashamed. What is the first thing Adam and Eve do when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? <laughs> they run from God. Why? They think God's going to come and zap, 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 zap. No, because they're oftentimes embarrassed and ashamed. They can't deal with what they've done, and so they have to go hide. 
Do you know this is a tactic of the enemy too? Not only does he tempt us to partake of that which we shouldn't, when we do, he says, they're going to hate you. You're stupid. You're an idiot. Well, you should carry this shame around with you because look how stupid you are. And you walk away from the church believing the lie of the enemy and he's got you in his snare. The last sermon of the series is in Genesis 4. And when God is talking to Cain privately, he says to him, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to devour you. But you need to conquer it. Don't open that door. Do not open that door. Do not take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't open the door. I've given you a way of escape. Take the route that I'm giving you. It's going to be tough, but you could do it. Don't go this way because it will lead to utter destruction. There is freedom within boundaries. As the worship team comes forward to close us out this morning, as we look at this series today on the consequences of sin and how good God actually is, even though our hearts could be far from him. Do you know what God could do to us? He could zap us where we, where we sit. He could, all the molecules could just completely evaporate and disintegrate, like in those movies. We could be vaporized in an instant. My dad's biggest excuse for not going to the church, other than not believing in God, was, if I step in there, lightning will strike, the roof will cave in on me. Yep, that's how God works. Now, I'm not saying he's not a God of wrath and that he doesn't discipline those he loves. And sometimes I'm not saying that he doesn't withdraw his hand of protection so we succumb to our own devices because of our own stubbornness. But what I am saying is that God's first action is not to zap. Prior, or, or, prior to, or excuse me, contrary to prior belief. There was one crucial experience that we do not have that the first humans have. We don't know what life is like without sin and death. Adam and Eve were given the privilege to experience both when God only wanted them to experience one of those things. You see, they immediately knew what they had lost. <clears throat> they lost innocence. They lost perspective. They didn't gain anything from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What they gained was loss. We don't know what it's like to live in a world without sin. We don't know what it's like to not be sinners ourselves. Someday we will. <laughs> we can live as believers in Christ now and be set free from sin and the eternal consequences of sin and death. Though we will physically die in this life, those of us who are in Christ and who believe in him and have surrendered our lives to him know what freedom is, especially when we step across that threshold from life into life everlasting. There is no greater glory and experience. There's nothing this earth can give us that could ever compare to that. And yet, and yet we still choose this God-forsaken tree. Why? Why? You see, what's human nature? I'm, I'm not perfect. 
No, but there is one who was, who did for you what you couldn't do for yourself so that when you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. No matter what sin has ever happened to you, no matter what you've ever done that has caused you shame, do you know that in God's eyes he can wipe that slate clean? He can cast your sins as far as the east is from the west? Get that concept in your mind because if you keep going east, guess what? You're going to keep going east. If you keep going west, guess what? You're going to keep going west. If your sins are cast that far away, God is saying, I'm indefinitely putting them out of range for you. They will no longer affect your destiny. Revelation 22, verse 14, and I'll close with this. <laughs> At the end, when Christ returns, blessed are those who wash their robes. <laughs> what are, what's a symbol of the robes? This outer garment. When we wash our robes in the blood of Christ, our sins are made as white as snow. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Do you hear that? Bookends. I give you in the center of the garden the tree of life and all the other fruit of the trees to eat except this one. Choose me and choose life. And at the end when we step through that threshold and into that place and our robes are washed in the blood of Christ that makes us white as snow, we will see not only the face of Christ who gave his life for us and all of the loved ones who have gone ahead of us who have believed in Jesus, but there will be a tree there. Actually, it says there will be multiple trees of life there whose fruit is produced every month, not just once a year that we will be able to partake of indefinitely. You know the one tree that's not there? because it's not needed anymore, because those that are there have chosen to be there, have chosen to receive Christ and not reject him, have rejected the tree of knowledge of good and evil, forsaking their own lives for the life of Christ. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't there. You can read all through Revelation, especially the last two chapters that tell us what heaven is like, and it's not there. Just the tree of life is there. That's what we were created for. These altars are open to my right, your left. You can come up here. Somebody will pray with you. If you don't know freedom in Christ, why don't you come to know that freedom in Christ today? Make him Lord of your life, no matter what you've done, where you've been, what travesties you have caused or have been caused in your own life. You don't have to be held in bondage of that anymore. True freedom exists within boundaries. And those boundaries exist for protection, not frustration. And there is a good God who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves to give us freedom from sin and death and the consequences of those things. Why wait? If you've walked away from Christ and you're just now coming back to the church because the church has harmed you in some way, you had a bad experience and you have carried bitterness, resentfulness, and hatred toward God or the church because of your past experiences, you're being held in bondage to the weight of that. But if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. If you're carrying the weight of the world, your past mistakes or the mistakes of others towards you, it's time to let it go. 
You can come to my left, your right. Nobody's going to bother you over here. If you, if you know what you need to pray, you know that you need to settle things with God and have those burdens released, but you don't want anybody to be with you, it's just between you and God, you come over here. Nobody's going to bother you. But again, I ask you, don't leave today. Those of you watching, don't shut off the broadcast until you've made a decision for either the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. The choice is yours. God will not micromanage your decision, but he, he holds his hands open like this, willing to receive you. Let's pray. God, not only are you the giver of life, you are the giver of all things good. And any deviation away from your good leads us into the wilderness of sin and death. God, forgive us. <laughs> we stumble, we fall, we frustrate ourselves and others and you. But instead of rejecting us and stiff-arming us, God, you hold an open hand to us as a way of escape to rescue us from sinking in a sea of sin. God, forgive us where we falter, where we failed you. Welcome us into your kingdom with open arms and with love that goes beyond anything we've ever experienced. Remind us that in you there is life and hope, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.